to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 11, as we follow along with today's lesson. In the... in Samaria, when... Philip went and preached Christ unto them. When the church in Jerusalem heard that the Samaritans had received the gospel, they sent unto them Peter and John, for as yet they had not received the Holy Spirit. And so when Peter and John came, they laid hands on them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And um, there was this one man, who was converted, his name was Simon. He was a formerly a sorcerer. And he saw that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was imparted. He sought to buy that power from Peter and John that he might do the same thing. Of course, Peter rebuked him and asked him to repent that the wickedness of his heart might be forgiven, thinking that God's gifts could be purchased. When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, and as a result of that dramatic experience of this bright light, was blinded for a period of time, and thus was led into Damascus, where he was staying uh, there uh, in a, on the street called Straight, God spoke to a disciple whose name was Ananias, and told him to go and lay hands on Paul that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he's not an apostle, but yet he came and prayed for Paul that he might receive his sight and be filled with the Spirit. In uh, the case of the house of Cornelius in Caesarea, where Peter went by the instruction of the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with them. While Peter was yet speaking, the Holy Spirit came upon them. He didn't lay his hands on them. In fact, he he sort of apologized to the church in Jerusalem. He said, you know, I just, the Lord told me to go and and I just went and, you know, I mean, it was God that, I didn't do it. It was God that did it. And uh, because they were sort of calling him on the carpet because he went into the house of a Gentile. And uh, so uh, they, uh, but Peter just was speaking and the Holy Spirit came upon them. A variety of ways. And that's good. Because we like to pattern God. We like to put him in a box. Uh, We like to say, well, this is the way God works. Uh, So that uh, the church has so often been divided over how God does things. Because 
this is the way God did it in my life. And so if it didn't happen to you like it happened to me, you don't have the genuine thing, you know. And, and, and so people are always trying to put God into a box. And, and so God did things in a variety of ways so that there wouldn't be that tendency of trying to conform him to one pattern. God can do things as he wishes, anytime he wishes. And uh, it doesn't have to happen to me like it happened to you or vice versa. Uh, God is very versatile in the way that he works with us. And it's to keep men from trying to organize God, trying to combine God to a formula or to a pattern. Uh, but just that freedom in the spirit. Jesus said, the wind blows wherever it wishes. You can hear the sound thereof, but you can't really tell from where it is coming or where it is going. And so is he that is born of the spirit. There is that freedom. There, there is that not structured, not patterned, not programmed way, but the spirit can move however he desires, whenever and wherever. The important thing is that we be open to the Spirit and how He wants to move. And uh, so uh, here was the initial outpouring. After that, the Spirit was just received by faith. Now, these people were all amazed. That is, the crowd that had gathered. And they were in doubt. Or that is, they were perplexed. And they said one to another, what meaneth this? Or as we would put it today, what does this mean? And others mocking said, they're full of new wine. Uh, there are always those in the crowd, uh, you know, that uh, are looking for a laugh and and so they, you know, making fun of it, saying, oh, they're, they're drunk, you know. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and listen to my words. For these are not drunken as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning, too early to be drunk. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This is the fulfillment of God's promise. Now, back in chapter 1, you remember Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, which I have been speaking to you about. No doubt the promise was that of Joel chapter 2, because when it happens, Peter immediately turns them to that prophecy and to that promise. So Jesus had been telling them about this promise in Joel. So when these people are saying, what does this mean? 
Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. I believe that it is of ultimate importance that if there be any spiritual manifestation or phenomena taking place, that we be able to point to the scriptures to give to people a scriptural basis for what is going on. I think that that is vital. I am not interested in any type of spiritual phenomena for which I do not have a solid scriptural basis. And I think that one of the problems today is that there is a lot of spiritual phenomena taking place for which there is no scriptural basis. And thus, I question the validity of some of the spiritual phenomena that is happening today. I attribute the phenomena to things other than a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. Whether or not it is psychological phenomena or a metaphysical phenomena or whatever, unless you have a solid scriptural basis for it, you really are on dangerous ground. You cannot use experience as a criteria for the truth because people can come along and tell you of all kinds of weird and wild experiences. And if they say, well, it made me closer to God and all, I don't care. Experience cannot be the basis for scriptural truth or for truth. You see, if we, if we allow experiences to be the criteria and basis for truth, then what are you going to do when the Mormons testify that when they started to read the Book of Mormon, they prayed, Lord, if this is your word, as I read it, give me a burning heart. And they will testify one after another that as they began to read the Book of Mormon, their heart began to burn. And so they have the burning heart experience. And by that, they are convinced that the Book of Mormon is God's word for the Latter-day Saints. Because experience becomes the criteria for which I know truth. So when you open experience as the criteria for discovering God's truth, then you have no authority and you have confusion because of how many different experiences people can have. Several years ago, back in the late 40s, <laughs> my grandson got married yesterday and they had the groomsmen all wearing top hats. And he said, well, Grandpa, we wanted to, you know, sort of make it in the 40s. I said, wait a minute, son. We didn't wear top hats in the 40s. You have to go back before the 40s for top hats, you know. But 
in the late 40s. There was a church up in Sadakoy that uh, was attracting a lot of people because as they would worship the Lord in what is called tonal praise, uh, there would come this ringing sound and they interpreted it as the angels joining their worship. And it was quite a, a phenomenal thing and hundreds of people were going up to listen to the praise and to hear the angels join the praise. And it was, it was attracting a lot of attention and quite a few people. Now, tonal praises where uh, you, you go, hallelujah, 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 and someone says, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You know, and so it's tonal because you take different notes uh, and, and you are all saying hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah in this tonal praise. And uh, you couldn't explain. Here's the, the, you know, definitely you could hear this harmonic ring uh, as, as the people were, were praising. And, and they would get all excited when it would start to ring. It would really then, you know, get everybody excited because the angels have come and joined us in our praise to God. Well, <laughs> I went to a PTA meeting in Huntington Beach. Uh, when my daughter was in grade school there. And at this particular PTA meeting, they had a speech therapist who talked about uh, different uh, uh, things of speech and sound and so forth. A very interesting speaker. And then he uh, was going to demonstrate to us uh, harmonics. And so he said, now, Put your head down and make it very nasal and start saying 99 nuns, 99 nuns, 99 nuns, 99 nuns. And, and he got them, you know, saying 99 nuns in various tones on the scale. And it started ringing. <laughs> now, I don't think it was the angels saying 99 nuns. But there was a explanation for this harmonic ring that started when they would be praising the Lord tonally. And, and I think that with many of these things that are thought of as supernatural phenomena, such as what they call being slain in the spirit, and uh, uncontrolled type of shaking, uh, clucking like a chicken, <laughs> or laughing uncontrollably. I think that these can be explained through sometimes psychology, and, and there are other explanations for them. And if you don't have a solid scriptural basis for what's happening, you're on shaky ground at the best. Here was 
supernatural phenomena taking place. The people said, what does this mean? And Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and he gave them the scriptural basis for the phenomena that they were observing. The promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And God said, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, this prophecy of Joel was for the last days. I believe we're living in the last days. I believe that Peter believed that he was living in the last days. And that the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is for this age, the church age. Notice that it takes you right through the great tribulation period because he speaks of the events of the great tribulation that Jesus quotes from Joel and declares it will be immediately after the tribulation of those days they will see the Son of Man coming with power and great glory. But the moon turning into blood and the sun uh, into darkness and so forth, uh, the signs in the heavens, uh, the meteorite showers and so forth are all things that are uh, spoken of for things that will take place during the great tribulation period. Now, that would indicate that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, should be operating right on through the tribulation period to the return of Jesus Christ. So that is the prophecy of Joel takes you through right to the coming until the great and notable day of the Lord come. That is that great and notable day when Jesus returns to establish the kingdom of God upon the earth. So to say that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, I believe is not correct. I believe that there is a valid work of the Spirit and valid gifts of the Spirit that are operating today that God desires that they should operate today. And I think that we need to be filled with the Spirit and coveting the better gifts of the Spirit as Paul exhorted the Corinthians in chapter 12. So Peter having given to them the scriptural basis for the phenomena they were observing, as he answered their question, what does this mean? He told them what it meant. And then he began to preach to them. This is the first sermon anointed by the Holy Spirit. The sermon centers on the person of Jesus Christ. Peter says seven things about him. The central thing, the fourth and the central thing, is that God raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ was the heart of the message of the gospel. 
and remains today the heart of the gospel and the message of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul writing to the Corinthians said, the gospel that I preached unto you, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried according to the scriptures, but rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, but it centers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he calls their attention once again, ye men of Israel. Hear these words. He identifies him, first of all, the subject, Jesus of Nazareth. The second thing, he was a man approved of God among you by the miracles and the wonders and the signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. As I said, the literal there is a man proved to be of God by all of these miracles and wonders that he did. When Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no man can do the things that you're doing except God be with him. Over and over, Jesus called upon his works as the witness to his authenticity. He said, believe me, or else believe me for my work's sake. And, and he was constantly showing or pointing to his works as proof that he was indeed the promised Messiah. So Peter picks this up. He said he was proved to be of God because of the signs and wonders and all that he did, of which you are all aware. And him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So the third thing, the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, he points out that the crucifixion of Jesus was not just an accident. It wasn't man out of control. It wasn't a mob kind of a situation. But it was a plan of God. It was something that God had planned all along. Now, that is a very easy point to prove. It is proved by the fact that it was prophesied throughout the scriptures. Take Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very cry of Jesus from the cross. They that see me laugh me to scorn. They shake their heads and they say he saved others, let him save himself. Or let God save him if God will have him. And, and these very things happened on the cross and yet David wrote about them a thousand years before the cross. He said, they pierced my hands and my feet. David said, they parted my garments 
among them, and for my raiment they did cast lots, or for my vesture. Uh, These things all predicted. So the fact that they happened a thousand years later indicates that God knew it a thousand years before and had planned it and thus put it in the hearts of the prophets to write these things. In Isaiah chapter 53, you have the account of God's suffering servant. You read, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement was of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes, even the scourging was prophesied, we are healed. All of we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one of us to our own ways, but God laid on him the iniquities of us all. And it goes on to describe how he was numbered with the transgressors in his death, made his grave with the, uh, with the rich and all. So that these things being prophesied in advance prove that it was the plan of God. He spoke about it 500 to 1,000 years before it actually took place. And so uh, it is God's determined counsel. It was something that God decided. And that is why it is such a mute and foolish argument as to try to place the blame for the crucifixion of Jesus on the Jews. A, a position that the, tri- that the church historically has tried to blame the Jews. And unfortunately... There have been many times where the Jews were persecuted by the church because they called them the Christ killers. That's so wrong. If you want to find the blame for the death of Jesus Christ, look in the mirror. It was for your sins that Jesus died. It was for my sins that he died. And it was God's plan that Jesus should come and give his life for our sins. And thus, it is manifestly wrong to try and lay blame and persecute the Jews because of the death of Jesus Christ. So Peter speaks to them of the death or the crucifixion, declaring it was by God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge You've crucified with your wicked hands. But now we get to the heart. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed him from the pains of death because it was not possible that he could be held of it. It wasn't possible for death to hold Jesus. Death could not keep its prey, Jesus my Savior, He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. And so it was not possible that he should be held to it. Now, when he comes to this fourth point, he then turns to the scriptures to verify from scripture the things that he is declaring concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to note how familiar Peter was with the scriptures. He had a good working knowledge of the scriptures. As he is speaking, 
he starts out quoting a good passage, a good portion of the passage from Joel 2. I don't think he said, hand me the scroll of Joel. Let's see here, you know, and, and read it. He, he had it in his heart. And now he's, he's quoting from the, from the Psalms. And he has a good working knowledge of the scriptures. And now he begins to give them the scriptural foundation and basis for the belief in the resurrection of the Messiah. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither will you allow the Holy One to see corruption. You have made me to know the ways of life and you shall make me full of joy with thy countenance. So having quoted this portion out of Psalm 16, which they recognized to be a psalm concerning the Messiah, he said, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Even to the present day, you can go to Jerusalem, and in the area where they call it the upper room, uh, up on Mount Zion, uh, in the room down below the upper room, there is a large silver uh, casket, and they, the Jews believe that David's remains uh, are there in that casket, and you'll see them in there burning candles and praying uh, at the tomb of David, uh, there on Mount Zion. So Peter said his sepulcher is with us to this day. Uh, therefore, being a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of the Messiah that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. So he gives in the scripture concerning the resurrection. You will not leave my soul in hell. When the Jews asked Jesus for a sign that he was the Messiah, he said, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Paul the Apostle tells us that he who has ascended, that is Jesus, is the same one who first of all descended into the lower parts of the earth, and when he ascended, he led the captives from their captivity. Peter tells us that he went and he preached to the souls that were in prison. But the prophecy of Isaiah is that he would open the prison doors to those that were bound. And so when Jesus died, his soul descended into Hades. And there he preached to the souls that were in prison, Abraham and those that were being comforted by Abraham. And when he raised from the dead, he led the captives from their captivity. 
And uh, so uh, here Peter is affirming from the scriptures saying that David wasn't talking about himself. He's dead, he's buried. We still have his sepulcher, but he's making reference to the Messiah that would be out of David's uh, descendants. And he said, this Jesus, having given them the, the, the scriptural background, he affirmed that he was speaking of the resurrection of the Messiah. His soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We're all witnesses. We saw him. We, we're witnesses of the resurrection. We saw him after the resurrection. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. So not only was he resurrected, but he has ascended into heaven where he is now at the right hand of God exalted. And having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. So the other three aspects, he's at the right hand of God exalted. He received from the Father the Holy Spirit, which he now has imparted unto us. And this is what you see, this is what you're hearing, is the Holy Spirit who has been imparted to us by the resurrected Christ. You remember Jesus said to them in the 14th chapter of John, and I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter, even the spirit of truth, that he may abide with you forever, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and he shall be in you. And so he received the Holy Spirit from the Father, imparted it to the church, this which you now see and hear. Again, going back to David, he's not ascended into the heavens but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There was the conviction. They realized that they made a terrible mistake in crucifying God's promised Messiah. What shall we do? How can we atone? Peter said unto them, repent. Now the word repent originally meant a change of thought or idea recognizing that my first thought was wrong, rethinking the issue. But then the meaning became a little deeper, and it was that of changing. Now, you may realize you're wrong, but you may go on doing the wrong thing. You may realize that that's, that's a wrong idea, but you may continue to follow it. And so it is your pattern of life in consistency with your thinking. So have a change of mind which will bring a change of your life patterns. 
repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So Peter said, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Go ye into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Um, and go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Matthew's gospel. So Peter said unto them, repent, be baptized for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, what promise? Promise of Joel 2. That in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And upon my servants and handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit in that day, saith the Lord. That promise is to you and to your children and to those who are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You, your children, those that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. This promise of the power of the Holy Spirit is ours, who have been called by God to submit our lives to Jesus Christ. As many as the Lord our God shall call, the promise of the power of the Holy Spirit is to you. And we all need this power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Now, how it will be manifested is up to the Spirit. Paul tells us that the Spirit divides to each man concerning the gifts of the Spirit severally to each man as he wills. That's his category, his sovereignty in the giving forth of the gifts. But Paul said, covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I'll show you a more excellent way. And though I have all of these gifts and powers and abilities, if I don't have love, it becomes meaningless. And so the supremacy of love and the fruit of the Spirit in my life, the real evidence of the Spirit in my life will be the love that flows forth out of my life. And if I don't have that love, though I may speak with tongues or work miracles or whatever else, I would have a great difficulty in proving that I was genuinely filled with the Spirit. The real evidence is this love working in and through our lives. And so with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, save yourself from this untoward generation. And they that gladly received his word were baptized and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So the church began with a real bang. A good jump start. As about 3,000 people responded to Peter's invitation, were baptized and joined together with the church. Now notice 
these are the um, activities of the early church. This is the pattern. This is the model. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That is, they got in and started studying the scriptures. Now with a new insight, now knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Old Testament suddenly comes alive because you can find him throughout the whole book. He's there. And thus it's exciting now to read the Old Testament and discover Jesus in the Old Testament. So they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship. The word fellowship is koinonia, this beautiful family, kind of a spirit and and feeling where we, as the body of Christ, realize that we are all a part of one another. And we begin to work together in unity, in harmony as the body of Christ. And then also in the breaking of bread, the taking of the broken bread and the cup together as they remembered the death of Jesus Christ and his suffering for us. And in prayer, four things. The study of the word, the unifying in love, the breaking of bread together, and praying. And reverence, fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and their goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house did eat the meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were just all together. There was a lot of joy and, and uh, just it was an exciting time for the church. And we read they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There you have the the model, the pattern, and the results. The Lord adds daily to the church such as should be saved. Now, in this selling of their possessions and having all things in common... There is nothing to indicate that this was directed by the Lord. One of the first problems that arose in the early church arose over this very issue. One of the couples sold some property and they brought in a portion of the amount that they received. However, they were acting like they were giving everything. So Ananias came in and he laid the money at the apostles' feet and Peter said, is that what you sold the place for? And he said, yep. Peter said, 
look, while you own that property, no one asked you to sell it. No one required you to sell it. After you sold it, you weren't required to bring the funds in. It's not a requirement. It isn't something that we are are making people do. Why have you decided in your heart to lie unto the Holy Spirit? You haven't lied to man, you're lying to God. And and this hypocrisy uh, was exposed and, and he fell over dead. After a while, his wife came in, not knowing what happened to her husband because they took him out and buried him. And so Peter said, is that how much you sold? Yeah. Said, Why this conspiracy? She fell over dead. And so the first problem, people falling dead, (laughs) happened as the result of this communal type of uh, experience or, or experiment that they tried. The next issue in the church, the next problem that arose is that as they were then distributing the church's goods, uh, those Jewish women who were living in a Hellenistic culture or following the Grecian culture felt that they were being shortchanged. They felt that those widows who were living according to the Hebrew culture were getting preferential treatment when they were dispersing the church's welfare program. So they came and complained to the apostles that they were not getting an equal share. And and so that was the second problem that arose in the church, both of them over this issue of, of having all things in common. Now, we do know that later on, it was almost disastrous for the church because they ran out of funds. And Paul was having to take offerings from the Gentile churches, he said, for the poor brethren in Jerusalem. So uh, it surely wasn't something that was intended uh, to, and, and we don't find that happening in any of the other churches. Uh, we don't find that as a, as a pattern that was established in the churches. It happened in the early church in Jerusalem. It could be that it was just one of those things that people were doing spontaneously. Everybody jumps into it, not really directed by God, but just something that happens and people sort of follow along. But uh, never commanded in the scriptures. Um, and uh, there, there's nothing that says that that's what a person has to do. Uh, It was something that they did uh, maybe just out of emotion because God was working. You're excited. God is working. And uh, a lot of times we we just respond emotionally uh, to the work of God and uh, not necessarily, it's wonderful, it's good, it's it's a great thing, but uh, it isn't something required by God. And in this case, uh, the, the net result was Not positive, but negative. So we leave them praising God, having a great time, just excited over the things of God's Spirit. And I pray that God's Spirit might work in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, that this excitement over the things of God 
that has been a hallmark of the church will never stop, that we'll always be seeing God's special work of his spirit that just excites our hearts and and keeps us buzzing over what the Lord is doing. It's thrilling to see God at work, just to, you know, to see it happening. And and it's just a blessing to, uh, to just have the privilege of, of watching God work in our midst. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 3, a very exciting chapter. In the second chapter, in verse 43, we read, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So now as we get into chapter 3, one of those wonders and signs are recorded for us. This is just one of many of the things that were happening in the early church. Now Peter and John were going together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. Now the Jews had three times for prayer. Uh, They uh, had prayer at six in the morning, 12 noon, and three in, or nine in the morning, 12 noon, and three in the afternoon. And so this is the three o'clock prayer session. It was called the evening prayer session. Peter and John were going into the temple to pray. The early Christians did not really see themselves as separate from Judaism. Uh, They still went to the temple to worship. Uh, It was still that center place of of, uh, the religious life of the nation of Israel. And so Peter and John were going into the temple just for prayer. And as we look at chapter 3, we see the men that God used in such a marvelous way. And I think that there is probably in each of our hearts that desire to be used of God. How I desire that God would use my life in the accomplishing of his purposes I think one of the most oft-asked questions is, how can I know the will of God? We desire to know God's will. We desire to be used of God because we've come to realize that nothing else really matters. Life, apart from the fulfilling of God's purpose, is very empty indeed. What does God want me to do? What of eternal value can I do? And so here are the men that God used. And it's interesting to note the characteristics of these men. And of course, right off the top, we see that they were men of prayer. God uses men of prayer. That should not surprise us. And surely, If I want God to use my life, I need to be in contact with God. Daily contact with God. I need to seek his guidance. I need to seek his counsel. I should not move or act independent of God's directions. And so men of prayer 
looking to the Lord in prayer for guidance, for strength, for wisdom. We'll return with more of our in-depth study of the book of Acts in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on the power of the name of Jesus. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Acts 2 through 3 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit and for the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we continue to study concerning the early church and the life of the church and the work of your Spirit within the church, Lord, we do pray that we might be open, open to whatever you want in and for the church today that we might be witnesses unto you in our world. Lord, thank you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. We stand in awe and wonder at your beautiful work in our midst. Lord, continue your work. Keep us in that place where you can do, Lord, what you're desiring to do in and through our lives as we surrender and submit ourselves And as we receive the promise, the gift of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Come along on an exciting adventure as Pastor Chuck reads the story of the Ten Commandments to children. God wants us to keep the Ten Commandments, but we just can't do it. So Jesus came and did it for us. Featuring Pastor Ken Graves as the voice of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Honor your father and your mother. And Pastor Poncha Juarez as the voice of Moses. Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And so many others. No, I will not let God's people go. Oh, no. Here comes the water. Go back to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh to release my people. To order the story of the Ten Commandments book by Pastor Chuck, which comes with the audio CD as a gift, call the word for today at 800 
1272-WORD. Or to see a sneak preview of the book, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.